Hi, everyone. It's Bud Mishkin, and welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success, the struggle, the odd first jobs, obstacles overcome, plan Bs, and the passion to push through. On the previous episode of the podcast, we had a conversation with a comedy great, Paul Reiser, wonderful actor and terrific stand-up. The name Robert Klein came up more than a few times during the episode, not surprisingly. Riser is part of the generation, Jerry Seinfeld, Jay Leno, Ray Romano, that reveres Robert Klein and point to him as the inspiration for getting into stand-up comedy. It was not surprising that Robin Williams, during an intro at one of the comic relief shows, called Robert Klein the sensei. And so, this episode, a conversation with Robert Klein. So many of us growing up knew Robert Klein's routines by heart and listened to his records endlessly. He is a comedy connector, a link to the Borscht Belt comics of the 50s and 60s, to The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and then the Seinfeld generation and beyond. Along the way, there was the Yale School of Drama, Second City in Chicago, A Thousand Nights in Clubs and Late Night TV, Movies, and Broadway. And it all started in an apartment in the Bronx. Growing up in the Bronx, I remember you once told me you had this idea of, I want to go out. I don't necessarily want to go down. Like, one day I'd like to go out. Was there a sense of, like, uh, someday I'm going to you know, break out of this joint? Or was it a place that you were pretty happy with growing up? Yes and no, uh, with respect to the environment. I was envied when I watched Ozzy and Harriet. They always had, everyone had a backyard in America, I, I thought, except the people on my block. But um, it was a vertical existence. When the ice cream man came, everyone, ma, ma, you know, for the dime to be thrown down for the ice cream man. My mother put it in a paper bag for safety's sake. But, um, you know, elevator up, I always walked down. I did want to go out. My out was three vacant lots with a lot of dog excrement. There were no laws against it, and that's what people did. You know. Part of the charm of the neighborhood. Yeah, my mother used to inspect me like a blacksmith inspects a horse, my, my, my soles and heels to make sure before I came in the house. That was the, uh, the jeopardy of softball on Decatur Avenue. And your mom, sense of humor? Wonderful sense of humor. My mother was a savant. She could play anything she heard with two hands beautifully. Took two years of piano lessons when she was a child. Eighth grade education became the right-hand medical secretary to one of the world's most famous brain surgeons, Leo Davidoff at Montefiore Hospital. My father was really funny. He was a peace good salesman. He knew Myron Cohen, who, told, who went to comedy. The guys used to say, hey, you ought to go into show business. You know, he told Yiddish stories and all that. Who, Myron I, Cohen said that or your dad said that? My dad and other guys that were fellow salesmen in the garment center, they all thought Myron Cohen should go into show business. But my father was every bit as talented as Myron Cohen, but never would have considered it. He was just a clown. He was an improviser, although he didn't know it. He'd make up songs with me. And uh, I think I got my comic instincts 
from him because from the first I remember laughter, you know. So is there a, a time in your life you can remember, perhaps before you go off to college, where you actually say to him or both of them, you know, I'm pretty good at this and this performing thing, and I'm going to try and give this a go? Not a chance. <laughs> it would have heads. My mother, father's head would have been in the oven in four seconds. No. Um, not at all. I always wanted to be a doctor. I had, it was a heroic doctor. It was a family doctor at Bainbridge Avenue, 204th Street. His name was Asa Rosenstein, and he practiced well into old age. And the Catholics lit candles for him, and the Jews lit candles for him. He delivered everyone's baby. He made house calls for three, five bucks, you know, and he was a wonderful man. I wanted to be a doctor. Of course, a few things got in my way, uh, calculus, physics, zoology, biology, reading, spelling, comprehension, you get the idea. Um, no, it was uh, my parents saw every Broadway show, we sang all the songs, but to actually go into show business was a very, very distant thing. I think I dreamt about it. I was in uh, you know, plays in camp and I was good. I wrote plays when I was in PS 94. But it was my second year of college at Alfred. I was pre-med for the first year, but then I switched to history, political science. They had a wonderful two-man theater department, very tasty, in this desolate place, 350 miles from New York in western New York. And I, I went out for Brothers Karamazov. And from then on, it was immersing myself in these well-done plays. Uh, Smith and Brown were their names, the mm -hmm. two tweedy gentleman who approached my father at the end of my junior year and said, you know, he's very talented and um, we believe we can get him into the Yale School of Drama. My father said, Yale? To be an actor? Did Eddie Cantor go to Yale? You know, he actually had a point. It, it, the year I spent in graduate school at Yale was very valuable because I was immersed you were in theater all day. And, you know, my best friend, Jimmy Burroughs, the biggest director there in California, my best friend there at Yale. Um, but it was, it, I got much more out of the good fortune uh, uh, than a half a year later or whatever, when I got, or the year later, got cast in Second City. I learned more there than anywhere else. It was a blessing. And uh, I got 150 a week. It's pretty good. But you had the performing bug as a kid. Tell me about the Teen Tones, how the Teen Tones came about, and what were the Teen Tones? Four boys from David Clinton High School. And uh, we, did, we didn't call it doo-wop then, but it was four-part harmony. And we got on the Ted Mack Original Amateur Hour. Um, for those of you not familiar with it, it was a long-running show. It used to be the Major Bowls Hour on radio before I was born. Frank Sinatra was on it. In other words, amateur talent was exposed on first radio and then television, real low key with a piano accompaniment. The night we were on, Cinderella was on. We were on ABC. Cinderella was on NBC, the biggest watched audience <laughs> in the history of television up to that time. I think even my parents, I'm not sure, weren't. We only had one set. And you couldn't tape it then. Anyway, yes, I did have the bug. I dreamt of the Teen Tones touring and all that. But on to college and other things. So uh, I reconnected. When I was substitute teaching after the year at graduate school, I went down to the village on these hoot nanny nights. 
took a lot of ganolis to do that uh, because, you know, get in front of a live audience and with funny things that I had been thinking about and written down. I went to the uh, uh, Cafe Wah! Exclamation point. Manny Roth was the first person to ever pay me. He gave me $15 once to work for a little group at this restaurant. Then he sent me to the bitter end, Hootenanny. Hootenanny meant the night when the regular act, usually a folk singer, was off. And they would have, uh, I guess, more or less an open mic. So I, I did well a few days, a few weeks, and then I didn't do well. I had no technique. So that was perfected later. But by this time, uh, that was a low point. Around the time President Kennedy was assassinated in 63, I was out of school. I had no prospects. I knew no one in show business. My father, mother knew no one. I had no connections. I was unemployed and out of school, and it was a real tough time. So I began substitute teaching, but a lot of it was luck. When the two professors at Alfred University in Western New York State say to your parents, actually, you know, he has a lot of talent. Did it feel like, okay, this is, and he, maybe he should go to Yale Drama School. Would it feel like it's okay to do this now? I've gotten their approval, these professors, or was it a little bit scary, like, whoa, 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 uh, this, this is what I'm actually going to do? Well, there's no doubt that the uh, panache or imprimatur of Yale didn't hurt uh, the idea that it was legitimate that right. these men were eloquent, you know, uh, one had been a navigator in World War II, had a British war bride, Brown, and 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 uh, Smith was an intellectual, <clears throat> you know, with a pipe. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, it legitimized it, and it made it, uh, you know, uh, because he was always worried. Like when I would tell him what I was studying at Alfred, he'd say, "Is that practical?" Political science? What can you use that? You know, like I should have taken shoemaking or some, some. Uh, you know, they were worried, and and I, I don't. But actually, my father much more than my mother. My mother was much more optimistic and forward-looking, and and uh, you know, you need that tenacity. And I was about, to, I, I was sort of giving up, but Jimmy Burrows called me, and uh, he was he he did the three years for the Master of Fine Arts. He went to college seven years um, and he had a review on weekends, you know, two guys and two girls, tuxedos and gowns, little political satire with a piano. And I, I borrowed his tuxedo and I got 35 bucks at the Hofbrau house in New Haven. And a William Morris agent came up to see Jimmy's work because his father, Abe Burroughs, the great Broadway director and playwright, mm -hmm. Sent, had been with William Morris for so many years, sent a guy up to see his kid's direction. And he saw me and he saw Jimmy. <laughs> he liked us both. But Jimmy was going back to school and I, he told me Second City's coming to town and they need actors. They don't go to New York anymore, but, you know. So I was in a room with Fred Willard, who I'd never met. And um, Billy D. Williams was in that room. I, someone reminded me later. About 15 or 20 actors looking for uh, two parts or three, three roles. And Willard and I did an improv together and we got the job. And, you know, I was one of my dearest friends for the longest time, just died last year. He was a genius. Mm -hmm. I mean, comedic genius and a wonderful man. I loved him. Do you remember where the audition was? Yes, the William Morris Conference Room 
in the old M-O-N-Y building, Mutual of New York, before they moved to uh, 6th Avenue. And I went down, they wanted to sign me when I, uh, you know, to the $150 a week. Believe me, they never missed a $15 commission. And my, I took my father with me. I'm going to sign with the William Morris Agency. And he said Lee Stevens was sort of second in command. On me and and he, he's enjoying my father being there. And my father says, let me ask you something. How many floors do you have in this building? He says, four. My father says, sign. <laughs> <laughs> they had four floors in the building. And this was after you were already substitute teaching or before you were substitute after. teaching? Never made my living any other way. But being a clown and uh, pretending to be other people and film and stage. And <laughs> How'd you get the substitute teaching gig? I had a college degree um, in New York. I would have had to take a number of courses and pass a number of tests for Westchester County. I was living with my parents in the Bronx. That was also depressing. I'd been away for five years. You know, I heard in New Rochelle, Yonkers, and Mount Vernon, they need substitute teachers, about 25 bucks a day. And I took one course at Hunter College, an ed course at night uh, for a few months concurrently while I was, I would work maybe an average of two and a half days a week. Uh, it gave me some self-respect. I got a little tiny studio apartment, 153rd, between Riverside and uh, Broadway across the street from the only crematorium in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know if it was then, it was a, it's a burial ground. That's, com that's a comedy gold right there, I would imagine. Well, I've always lived next to a cemetery. When I was a kid, I lived next to Woodlawn Cemetery. But anyway, that was the fortuitous thing. Uh, the agent seeing me. What if Jimmy hadn't asked me to, to come to that show? Uh, I don't know if I had the, the chutzpah to knock on doors and promote myself. I could perform, and I was talented. But, I, you know, that's only... I don't know, 50 or 60% of it. You must have the tenacity to be vulnerable and push and push until something happens. You know? Is there anything from that substitute teaching experience other than a great bit about that you used on one of your records about uh, waking up when the, the principal calls and you don't know any German and you, all of a sudden you're substitute teaching German. Is there anything in that experience teaching, I understand, primarily African-American kids, anything that affects down the road when you're in comedy and very successful at it and in show business? Is there any, any link there whatsoever? No, just really some good material at the beginning. As a human being, I learned a lot about, um, you know, I guess really an appreciation for what a teacher who's really motivated can do, you know, that Kids can suddenly, because uh, of substitute, is to, you know, that you take advantage. Right. But my sister taught in the city for 33 years. Um, it's possibly the most important uh, occupation in America. And, you know, uh, Lenny Bruce pointed out years ago, a faro dealer in, in Vegas makes more. You know, uh, we don't pay them properly. We don't give them the proper respect and tools and and trust, and it was often a fallback profession. What the hell am I doing in a classroom? I, had, I went to college, you know, and they let me go into a classroom even as a substitute. Um, I, I really, my earliest material was, I found that the children hilariously funny, 
and uh, at times charming and at times incredibly annoying. And I remember once in this junior high school, Washington Junior High School, there was a, a boy who was dressed. He must have missed a few years left back or so, but he was dressed as an adult, very dapper, very tough looking. He was a good looking boy. And um, you could tell that he, he was feared and respected. And then we were reading and it came his turn to read. And it was obvious he couldn't read. Mm. And all his panache, all I second time I used panache. There's a two panache limit on anybody. <laughs> yeah. um, his charisma, all that melted. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was important that if you give him half a chance, and they're not the only kids. I taught rich kids too, and, and New Rochelle and mixed and all that. But uh, it's so important that you, you can have such an influence when they think you're, uh, you know, they knew I was went to drama school and they thought they saw me on television, but I was never on television. And you can do a lot. There's a phone call. That's right. I forgot oh, right. those. Of course, it's my sister. Wait a minute. This is good. Rhoda, I'm taping something right now. I'll call you back, okay? Okay. Okay. Wait, does she want to make sure that you tell the story about uh, what she used to say to you back in the apartment growing up in terms of going to your room? Well, Rhoda just called. She uh, she and I shared a tiny bedroom with a, a trundle bed that came out. We went head to foot. But when she became 12 and 13, it became unseemly for me to share the same room. So they shuffled me off to the living room. We had no more bedrooms. My parents had one. And I, I was a Castro Ottoman. It was meant to put your feet on. And it came out into a single bed. And she got angry at me once. She said, shut up and get on your room. <laughs> Great line. Um, yeah, I, I, it was crowded. And that was another thing I didn't like. It was so crowded in that apartment with the four of us. You know? So you go off to Chicago and you have often talked about how great Second City was for you. Is that something that you get immediately as soon as it starts? Like, wow, th now I'm, this is it. I'm, I'm in. Or did it, was that more gradual? No, it wasn't gradual at all. <laughs> it was one of the greatest things in my life because I had seen them. And I had gone to see Beyond the Fringe on Broadway. Then I hear about Second City and that they were at Square East, where we played later, where we came to New York with the show. But anyway, uh, I'd seen them on David Susskind's show, interviewed Alan Arkin, Barbara Harris, Paul Sand. And, you know, Mike Nichols was before them in, when it wasn't officially Second City and Elaine May and Ed Asner. But I looked at them and I saw a sketch, you know, and I said, that is smart show and show business, but not the tawdry part. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Well, I, I didn't want to be a comedian when I wanted to be a comedian, the kind with cufflinks and the old jokes, even though they made me laugh. And I wanted to take it some further. Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters were tremendous inspirations in that sense. Bruce pushing the envelope in terms of social comment and all that. Uh, Jonathan completely uh, not apolitical, but both of them were one-man shows. They made noises. They did voices. They... You know, uh, Second City was, when I got it, because I knew what I was getting into, I was sort of a doppelganger of Alan Arkin. I did some of his old sketches that he had created, just like we created ones that we leave 
for future uh, casts to do, you know, uh, of, of when you go back into the old, you know, sketches with you. We, made, we used to do three new shows a year, but it was a wonderful, because it, it, it was dual purpose with respect to an actor. Uh, it, first of all, you did the set sketches as if a multiple performance, like on Broadway. You do the same thing every night. So you learned how to find out what, what's in the lines, how to do it. Then we would take a break, take suggestions, go backstage for 10 minutes, come out with hats or canes or whatever, and improvise a new a whole new sketch. And from those improvisations came the next show. So I applied that to stand-up because I never wrote like a playwright. George Carlin would write his shows, perfect them, do just like a playwright. And when he did an HBO special, the, the technical director knew the first line and the last line. Wow. With me, the stuff was derived from improvisation. And I might do it different ways. When I have a good laugh, a solid one, I'm not messing with it. But our approach was entirely different. But it was, you know, as David Steinberg, who was the real star when, when I got there, he said, we were rock stars. We were. Second mm -hmm. City was still new. It was sensational. The, the crowds were huge. Uh, David Mamet was a waiter <laughs> in, in the uh, beer garden. I found out later when I found out David Mamet was David Mamet. Right. Uh, it was just the most perfect thing. And Chicago was humming then. And uh, I got invited to the Playboy Mansion uh, in Chicago. I never saw anything like that. So while you're doing it at Second City, are you confident like, yeah, this is this is it. And I'm, I'm I belong here. Or is there any notion of can I can I can I hack this? Can I do this? David Steinberg was like a tough drill sergeant. He wasn't doing it to improve me, but he wiped the floor with me because he was so expert and I was new. I mean, I, I had raw talent. Right. But between our two directors that we had, Sheldon Patinkin, who was Mandy Patinkin's cousin, the late Sheldon Patinkin, and the late Paul Sills, who was the very first director of Second City, got to work with both. David was rough on me. And when he went to London to do a London version of the show, I got a chance with Fred Willard to blossom. And when David came back, it, you know, I, I could match him. I, we have since had a rapprochement. I mean, he's, he's, he's a brilliant guy. He had a great career as a director, mostly. But um, I never saw anyone better. And he was just a wonderful improviser. He had a great imagination. So I, I, I felt good from the beginning, but I had to learn quickly uh, I, the, the, the ropes, so to speak. Mm. I was 23 years old. You know, I, uh, I drove out to Chicago. My father gave me $620. And every week I'd put, I got 150 a week, I'd put at least 50 in the Etna State Bank up on Fullerton Avenue in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I came home with $1,100, and my father always said, salt it away, salt it away, <laughs> you know, for a rainy day. Dollars were rare in my house, so, you know. And at that point, are your folks sold on this idea of a, a life in show business, or are they still <laughs> kind of on the fence? No, they're still nervous because I came back. We had a show in New York, unsuccessful, about five or six weeks. And then I got a 
potato chip commercial with Judy Grobart, who was my, uh, she was wonderful on the electric company for years. Mm-hmm. And she was my mate at Second City. We did Ruffles Have Ridges, a little cartoon baby going, roo, roo, and I was the father. And over a couple of years, 1966, it made about 17, 20,000 bucks or so. But I, I started to, uh, well, more detailed story of meeting, uh, of getting my first Broadway show. They, my father was always nervous about it, but a very funny quote of my mother's. And my first Carnegie Hall concert, and I wasn't a violinist either, <laughs> it was the first annual Robert Klein reunion invented by Neil Bogart, who was head of my record company at the time, for Child of the 50s. It was a packed house. It was a cheap ticket, like five, six bucks or whatever. And yeah, standing ovation. Everyone went crazy. It was an incredible night. And my mother turned to something and said, well, if this doesn't work out, he can always go back to teaching. (laughs) So, you know, until I don't know what point, but I'm very, very happy and proud that uh, they got to sit next to the president of the United States in the White House lawn and watch me perform with Lucy Arnaz and they're playing our song. It was President Carter. And we got a standing ovation in the Marine band behind us. President Carter jumped up on the podium to see what a standing ovation looked like. <laughs> How about um, during your yeah. summers? What years are you working up in the Borscht Belt in the Catskill Mountains of New York? And <laughs> what effect does that have on you looking at show business and specifically stand up? Um, as a kid, when my father had a good year, we spent two, two weeks in a tiny hotel somewhere. Um, but when I was a college student, I worked as a counselor in a small hotel called the Alamac. And the next year I was a lifeguard. And the master of ceremonies, usually a guy with a, you know, dreadful hair. And uh, he quit. And they knew that I was a kibitzer and kidded around, you know, and I sang with the bandaloo. So they gave me $15 extra to introduce the acts that came through. So I saw live comedy the first time when I was a child and then as a college student, uh, Lou Manchel, Bernie Burns, Larry Deutsch. These were expert Bush Belt comedians, all American born, but they could throw in a little Yiddishism. Right. The English jokes with the Yiddish punchlines. I'll tell you, I went to my wife. So let's make love. She said, I can't. Went to the doctor. You know what he said? <laughs> and I used to have to turn to an old man. What did he say? You know, um, and so I, I thought to myself, what a way to make a living. You come in your Cadillac, you make people laugh for 35, maybe 40 minutes. They forget their troubles, their disappointment in their children or their marriage or their health or whatever. And your stomach hurts from laughing so much. And they go on to the next bungalow colony or wherever. First time I ever thought of it as, wow. What an interesting thing to do. And I was a busboy in, um, in Swan Lake. Um, and I, in an industrial kitchen, I vowed I would never, ever work again. I was a big up! You know, these mean summer help chefs with, you know, the tattoos were so wrinkled from World War One. you know what I mean? Like the girl, <laughs> the beautiful girl became one of these. 
<laughs> and, you know, like very shady people. And they called you by what your order was, you know. Tuna salad, pick up. Yeah, I kicked your, I kicked your ass, pancakes. I kicked your ass. Um, and and the, the tradition of the comedian was fantastic. Then when I was trailing around with Rodney Dangerfield, who became, after my first trip to the improv, uh, after I got my first Broadway show, Mike Nichols' Apple Tree, I was in the chorus. First Broadway show I ever auditioned for. And for Mike, of all things, I went down the improv because I had heard about it from David Steinberg and I did some stand-up and I did really well. And Barbara Harris came and Alan Alda, the stars of the show, the whole cast came to watch me. And this guy comes up to him, I'll tell you, man, you know, I'm tough, you know, full of expletives. And um, he told me, now you've got to come here every night for three years to get it right. He was truly my Yale drama school for uh, stand-up, Rodney. Um, what was behind that? Why was he saying you have to come here every three years? And what did, how, would, how did you respond to that? Uh, well, probably I was a little cocky. Three years, you know, whatever. But he <laughs> was right. You know, because it's, as undisciplined as he was in his personal life in many ways, he was incredibly disciplined as a comedian. When he had a Tonight Show, he'd start two months earlier, writing new jokes, writing them down on his shirt cardboard and practicing them. And, you know, uh, he saw rough talent there. And now I had it. And I began going every night after my show. I'd take off the makeup, the costume, and go down the street, 44th Street with it. And then I began going with the tape recorder because I saw this woman whose name was Joan Rivers, with her husband, Edgar, working the tape recorder. I said, we used to do that at Second City. So we know what we improvised. We're working on a new show. Why can't I do that? And I began going every night. And because there were so many regulars at the improv at that time, on 9th Avenue and 44th Street, um, you know, Liza Minnelli would come by and sing a song. And a lot of just fringe theater people loved to go to the improv to see the talent. They were the same people every night. So I felt compelled all the time to improvise new stuff, recorded it, worked on it. And, you know, and then when, when Rodney introduced me to Jack Rollins and Charlie Joffrey, they were managing Cavett and Woody Allen and Joan Rivers, and they had managed Mike Nichols. He was the best in the business, Jack. He was the best thing that ever happened to me, too, in terms of management. He, he lived to be 100 years old smoking eight cigars a day in that office on, on, on 57th Street. Everyone that worked there died, and he lived to be 100. I mean, it, it was <laughs> now, cigars. You say you yeah. bring your tape recorder. Now, those of us of a certain generation will understand this, but younger generation will think of a tape recorder as this little thing. You're talking about, like, what, an old woolen sack tape recorder? Exactly right. The original one I brought down weighed about 20 pounds. It was a silver woolen sack, reel to reel. Uh, within, I would say, a year or less, they were miniaturized reel to reels where you could put small reels on. Right. Followed by audio cassettes, followed by, you know, um, a mini cassettes, then digital. I once did a gig for Dick Clark, who was producing it, the 10th anniversary of the Sony Walkman. And Mr. Morita was there, who invented Sony. 
And I tried to explain to him, he understood English, how the diminution of these recording devices, their size, was useful to comedians as well as musicians. He didn't seem to get it anyway. <laughs> so comedians talk about, uh, I've heard many comedians talk about before their first Tonight Show and then after their first Tonight Show. First of all, the specifics. How did you get your first Tonight Show? Well, the big night when Rollins and Jaffe came down to see me, Rodney arranged it all. Suddenly, William Morris, who wasn't paying attention to me, I was getting 175 a week on Broadway, or 200, I forgot. They're taking 10% every week. I said, I'm doing stand-up. You got to come see me. Oh, we'll come and see. We'll come and see. As soon as they heard Rollins and Jaffe had coming, you know, who wouldn't replace them, by the way. Manager, usually in those days, got 15%. Agent gets 10%. Why management suddenly popped up? But they were influential. Anyway, Merv Griffin's whole staff came to see me and offered me a five-deal exclusive deal. I'd never been on television except for the Ted Mac ever. And Jack said, look, it's up to you, lad. Me, you know, lad, it's up to you. It's a wonderful imitation of him, but you, people don't know it. It's like when I do Isaac Newton. Nobody knows. You can't check. But those of us still remember Fred Capicella still understand the Fred Good Capicella. Good afternoon, racing fans. Yes, I loved him. So anyway, uh, he said, I would wait for the Tonight Show. We can arrange the Tonight Show for you. So he tells Rudy Tejas, the producer of the Tonight Show, he's got a hot new kid. And I guess they came in November and January. I did my first Tonight Show. In fact, they convinced him that what I was doing was so different than what other comedians were doing that they arranged for me to do panel first for two minutes and then do the stand-up. And I, the, the, the minute and a half sitting down was nothing. I get up and I really did well. And... I did Fallon just before the pandemic hit and they gave me a plaque with all my tonight shows and the total was 94. Wow. And that includes about 15 guest hosts for Johnny, but that's a lot of material. There was one year when I did it nine times either 19, of course my first was January 68. So you say before and after I remembered your question. Before and after, someone who's 80 years old, that's not bad. Um, I, I am a creature of the Tonight Show and all the talk shows. Uh, Tonight Show 94, how many Letterman's? Over 40 or 50. Merv Griffin's, Mike Douglas, Stella Reese, everyone. I never wanted to do sitcoms early in my career. I turned down a few big ones, but I don't regret. Want to hear what when I turned down? Uh, the Wayne Rogers role in MASH, I was offered opposite Alan. I thought the movie was genius. I read for it. I didn't get a part. I didn't want to do a sitcom with joke, laugh, joke, laugh. I love the Honeymooners. I love Bilko. All in the family was great. Danny Thomas's son, a doctor or something I turned down. More recently, as a geezer, in the last 20 years, I've done two sitcoms. One with Jason Alexander, slightly interrupted by 9-11. Did 10 episodes. More recently with Judith Light, the CBS called The Stones. A few failed pilots, you know, a couple of big specials for NBC. The big thing, of course, I think people remember 
if they know about it, which was kind of revolutionary. I was the first HBO uh, original programming ever. Right. And um, I did nine of them. And it was the most wonderful relationship because even as a, you know, not the biggest star in the world, I had complete freedom of my material. They never cut a word of anything I ever said. They were not over my shoulder every second. And a lot of that was Michael Fuchs, who really made it from a small thing into a very, very big thing. And we always had, you know, pretty good leadership since then. Plepler took over nicely. And I mean, it became gigantic. Now it's, of course, a lot of competition. But I was there at the beginning of a lot of stuff. You mentioned a bit from the Catskill Mountains, uh, the English joke with the Yiddish punchline. Right. And there are those of us who <laughs> know those bits pretty much word for word. And so I always thought, wow, for a musician, a musician can record a bunch of music, hopefully be successful, and then play those songs and make a living out of that. Whereas the comedian is expected to show up and have completely new material all the time. Uh, your thoughts on that? Is that is that how you look at it? Or is there a way of bringing back these classic bits that works for you when you're doing a show now? Well, there's certain truth to that. But of course, recording artists always come out with a new record, a new, a new, uh, new material. And of course, when you become popular enough, people want to hear old bits. But it's true. It was uh, the talk shows and HBO were tremendous gobblers of material. Um, I thought you were going to talk about uh, plagiarism, but because um, Dickens in the 1850s could protect his material much more thoroughly than I can in 2022. Right. People told me uh, some guy was, was singing uh, the colonoscopy song, which for which Bob Stein and I were nominated for a primetime Emmy. Right. And he says he wrote it and he's selling CDs on cruises, you know, and all that. <sighs> um, gosh, some guys always, you see, in the Borscht Belt, one of the Grossinger relatives, when she was a little girl, she would tip off comedian coming in what jokes the other one did so he wouldn't repeat them. Wow. In other words, stealing was a matter of just, you know, I worked with a comedian. <laughs> I won't mention his name. Uh, he, could, he produced the show and, uh, I saw two or three of my best jokes and, and on the same bill with me. I didn't happen to do them that night because right. I have hours of material, but I said, hey, man, and then he said, oh, they're yours? You know, like, oh, I didn't realize they were yours. I thought they were someone else's. When you uh, got that first Tonight Show, you know, you're, you're the hot, I got a hot kid for you. Do you recall a particular time, once your career is quite established, where all of a sudden you went from being the hot kid to the person that the hot kids held up and admired. Like the next generation was looking at you as you are their guy, whereas you had other people to be your guy. Well, they've all told me that since. In fact, I had a birthday tape on February 8th, my birthday, um, that some Dan Pasternak organized uh, Seinfeld and Jay Leno and, and Billy Crystal and a bunch of them wish me a happy birthday. And they all, they said that also. And there's, there's a documentary about me, you know, uh, Robert Klein still can't stop his leg. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was produced by uh, 
the Weinstein Company, and it's I think it's on Stars Plus or Stars app, but it's in litigation. Um, I found out all this later because they were in the audience. Uh, I do remember seeing Richard Lewis, and I thought he was doing me. It wasn't stealing jokes, but he reminded me so much of my attitude and everything. Anyway, I, I bumped into some, some friends. You know, we're friends of Richard Lewis. And I said, well, tell him he's doing me. He wrote me a huge hurt letter. We have very good friends now. He's a very, and he, he certainly earned his own marbles, you know. But um, Leno, who, who best put it, he said, when you're a kid in Western Massachusetts, you want to go into comedy, people commiserate with your mother. Is he still into that comedy thing? Or is he, is he past it, you know? And the story that lingers on is, is Leno's very last Tonight Show. Billy was on. And he said, you know, you had a crummy apartment in Boston. You had only one thing on the wall, a poster of Robert Klein, Child of the 50s. Yeah. And that story has been repeated. People bring it up to me because, you know, they've talked about it. So, you know, I was a guy that went to college I was, you know, not like the old comedians with the tuxedos and the thing, which is, you know, I mean, there were some really great ones. Fat Jack Leonard always made me laugh. Rickles, incredible, made me laugh. Uh, Alan King, I got kind of a little tired of after all those years on The Tonight Show. By the way, he was a hell of an actor. So I think they identified with her. Richard Lewis, Stewart, John Stewart, Billy. I mean, they, they saw me as you know, using my brains a little. At one of the uh, comic relief shows, Robin Williams referred to you as the sensei. I remember that. Um, he, that was one of the great thrills. My, my son, who is now 38, uh, he was, I don't know, 11, 12. He came out in a picture of us together at the comic relief. And he saw me and he did one of these, you know. My, my son was thrilled because he was a great Robin fan. That will always be... Uh, uh, something that that I have the admiration and respect of those that my peers and those that were a few years behind. You know, I remember when the whole Second City crew came to see me at uh, that huge theater in Toronto. Belushi, Aykroyd, Gilda, Marty Short, you know, and we stayed up all night drinking in this place. That, I don't know, Belushi and Aykroyd were sleeping on a shelf in some bar. <laughs> They rented this. I don't know what it was. Um, you know, I was the one that I, I, I've had my day, you know, and now I, I um, I'm trying to think. I haven't worked in front of it. I did a seven minute turn at the New York Film Critics Circle. I made them. I made the, uh, Lady Gaga laugh a couple of times. So one last thing before we go, and that is. Um... Once it started to happen for you, did you still have kind of a plan B in mind in case for whatever reason it stopped? Or once you got a little taste of it, there was no stopping you? No, there was no stopping. It was um, once I was with Rollins and Jaffe, I had plenty of bookings. In fact, after two years, I didn't go to the improv much anymore because I could learn on the job. I would improvise a certain amount on the job. I'd hear a recording next day, beginning of a new bit. And of course, nine shows for HBO, including two that were 90 minutes. I had to generate a lot of material. No, I just knew it. And the other thing is, 
versatility. I may not be the, the greatest in each individual one, but I never was out of work because I was when I wasn't doing stand-up, I was acting. Right. Now I made my bones during doing stand-up comedy, but then I did a movie or I did a play or I, you know. In fact, I, I had such a busy schedule as a stand-up. Really, I could have done, was invited to do Saturday Night Live more than the two times I did it. I did it the very first year, the fifth show, and then the third year. I think versatility did two things. It kept me working and it kept me interested. If I had to be an actor waiting around for the next role or just doing comedy and not breaking it up with a part, you know, the one thing that's tough and underrated from the actor's point of view is live theater. If you're in a hit, and I was in two big ones out of, I did five, was six Broadway shows and two closed out of town. You have to do the same thing every night and, and twice uh, on matinees. And it is, and Alan Arkin is the only one I've ever heard articulate this and feel the same way I do. After a few months, all the important people have seen it, and that, not, not to be uh, you know, arrogant, Mm-hmm. But friends have seen it, uh, the, all the big, big biggies, and even that's not important. You're, you, after a year, you're seeing the same things, and you have to find new ways to keep yourself from being driven crazy. At least I did. Um, I did uh, playing our song for eight weeks in California before Broadway, or seven weeks, and then a full year on Broadway. I, I didn't win the Tony. I was nominated. I never had a chance against Sweeney Todd, but, you know, I, it was, I won it out already. And Sisters Roseswine, we did the first half of the run at Lincoln Center and the rest on Broadway. And Madeline Kahn, one of my oldest friends, she and Peter Boyle were two from way, way back that I loved, both gone way before their times. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jane Alexander won a Tony too. Um, it's just really difficult to say the same things over and over again. You can say that for movies and television. You may do a lot of takes, but once it's there, it's there. Mm-hmm. Now, live theater can never be replaced. There's a magical thing about it, especially for the audience, because the worst performance I ever gave would only be, they'd think is brilliant. I, even though I, I wasn't exactly mailing it in, but you know, I knew it wasn't my best performance. They would never know. So you get used to doing it. You have a certain professionalism because when they're seeing it, that's the first time and only time for the most part they're seeing it. When I went to see Fiddler on the Roof, the last person in New York to go, Zero Mustel had come back being absent for a year or two. 50,000 a week, made big headlines. He was kidding around. He wasn't doing it, taking it seriously. And my drama coach at Yale Constance Welch said when she went to see Streetcar Named Desire, Marlon Bar- uh, Brando was fooling around. He ruined it, you know. And so you have to give him a fair shake. I, when the, you know, there's something about the audience that has grown on me over the years. When I first started as a comedian, it takes such nerve. It's it's an adversarial relationship. It's like a bullfighter. You're trying, they don't know who you are. And I really found out they really want the best. But, you know, sometimes it just, you don't have it and they don't have it. But now they're the friend, they're friends. They're happy to see me. 
you earn that over the years, you know, and makes up for being incredibly ancient. <laughs> but I would say that my best invested money, I've been working uh, with a trainer for 30 years. Only two trainers, one for two years, the other one for 28 years, three times a week. It's hard, but I think I'm really good shape for my age. And compass mentors and uh, I, I have no problem memorizing my lines right. I have a problem remembering why I went into the kitchen right and I, my, I, I didn't forget what I was talking about today but names and nouns sometimes escape me nouns are overrated nouns are <laughs> overrated way overrated so Robert thank you as always just a pleasure and uh, you know it wasn't just those comedians whose lives you affected there are, there are thousands of us. Robert Klein. He still has his fastball, still making us laugh a lot, as he's done for more than 50 years. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. Thanks as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the new year, including interviews with writer Jane Green, ESPN's Jeremy Schapp, environmental and real estate changemaker Majora Carter, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks as always for joining us on the journey.